0: Good morning, everyone. I'm Barry. I think I know most of you. It's good to see our family together on a Sunday morning. Um, I'm an elder here at Cornerstone. Uh, It's my privilege to be able to bring the Word this morning. Uh, It's just really exciting to be together as a family. Uh, The musical worship this morning, I I think I could have just kept doing that all morning, so maybe we'll just switch up and, and do that. Um, No, it's just really good to be here this morning. It's so nice to see everyone. Um, Yeah, today is going to be a good day. Uh, We've got church picnic this afternoon. It's going to be exciting to spend time together as a family, just enjoying uh, the outside, which is extraordinarily warm, and each other's company and the family that God has given us. Um, Yeah, can we pray uh, for this word this morning? Lord Jesus, we, uh, we come to you and we worship you in, in spirit. We worship you in truth. God, thank you for uh, who you are, the embodiment of the Holy Spirit that has come to earth, that came to earth as man, as flesh, who suffered on behalf of us all and died on the cross. Lord, we um, pour ourselves out to you today and we pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us today, that we would experience you in a deep way, that we would experience your, your godness and your manness all at the same time. We worship you, Jesus. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the creation that you've provided. We thank you for the family that you've grafted us into. In the name of Jesus Christ, the firstborn of all creation, we pray. Amen. Um, Where to begin? Uh, Yeah, let's, as Justin said, we are Taking a quick break from our study of First John, to dwell on this concept of the incarnation of Jesus. And First John, John said in First John chapter four, and, and Justin shared this with us last week. Um, in chapter four, he said, "Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets had gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God." Listen by this you know the spirit of God every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God I'm going to say that again by this you know the spirit of God every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God a pretty simple statement, but it's a really powerful and important one, especially for us. Uh, those who gather in a place of worship to declare the name of Jesus, it's critical to us through our history, through our faith. It is the foundation, indeed, of what our faith is based upon. You know, it's an interesting idea, this incarnation. Um, prior to the Religion that Jesus ushered in. There had been lots of gods. There had been lots of mythologies. There had been lots of people that worshipped in the way that they thought was right, these gods um, that they believed controlled their fates and controlled their destinies and held all of their lives in balance. Before Christ, there had been lots of faith lots of religion, and lots of belief of how the earth came about, how the gods would create the earth, and how moderate forms of salvation could be found through the gods. But until Christ, this concept of the incarnation had never, ever been heard of before. In, in old mythology, and the old religions, in the old faiths, at times, here and there, the gods would sometimes take on the form of humans for a brief period of time. Like they would put on the clothes of a human so that they could interact with man. But it was only ever, and it was always only, out of a desire for the gods to play their little chess game with man. So the gods would take on human skin, and they would interact with humans, and they would twist the fates around so that man could serve their their capricious goals of doing whatever it is that gods do. So the concept of God being man was not an entirely foreign concept, but there is an enormous and a huge difference in the incarnation that we as Christians proclaim and believe. And that incarnation, what we believe is so critical that the foundation of our faith is based entirely on it. Jean, can you go to the, the first slide? The foundation of the Christian faith is based on this strange story of the incarnation. It's not a story of an incarnation of a God who just for a brief time took on the form of an adult human and did all sorts of fantastic things, although the story includes part of that. But the story of the Incarnation is much deeper than that. The old religions, they had these gods that just kind of played around with man. And they could do what they wanted to with man. But, but until Christ, and until the story, until the reality of Jesus Christ, there had never been a story of a God who was born as a baby, ushered into a world of disease and sickness And danger? Never before had that happened. None of the gods prior to our God was willing. It's been a weird week for me. You're probably seeing it. Um, Prior to that time, none of the gods had ever said, I am going to not only take on flesh for a brief period of time, but I'm going to become just like you. All of the stuff that you experience, I am going to experience that. Not so that I can twist the fates around and play a little game with your lives, but so that I can save your life. And I am going to come, as a baby, into a world of disease and destruction. I mean, think about the time when Jesus came. Compare it to today. We're talking about somewhere in the vicinity of 3 BC. Every disease, for the most part, that we have today, they had back then. Child mortality rates were through the roof. There were no vaccinations. Medicine was basically non-existent. And this is the world that God said, I am going to inhabit as a baby. I am going to grow up as a child, become a man, and then die. And then die. Just so that you can live. The story of the incarnation is, is absolutely foundational to everything that we believe. The Nicene Creed that most Christian faith revolves around says this, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for all salvation, he came down from heaven. Was the incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That just means universal. Not talking about the Roman Catholics. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. The basis of the Christian faith is centered upon the fact that Jesus was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became truly human. Why is that so important? Why is that so absolutely critical to everything that we believe? I submit that it it's because of the fact of death that that is important. Because the ancient gods, the one thing that they were never willing to do was to die. They might take on flesh for a brief period of time, but you better believe that once it came time for the ancient gods to face death, they would snap, go back to their heavenly realms, to their clouds with their thunderbolts. They could continue to play their game. The gods... The gods that John warns against are not willing to die. But it's the fact of death in this world that makes the incarnation so hugely important to everything that we believe. Because we as human beings are surrounded by death. All around us is death. We experience death in everything. Our own lives, it's inextricable one day I will die, and one day you will die. One day, every person that you have ever loved will die. One day, every relationship that you have ever had in life will die. Sometimes we experience those while we're living. We constantly experience the deaths of those we love. We experience the deaths of every relationship. We, re- we experience the death of everything good. We experience the deaths of marriages, of everything— of organizations, everything in this world that is good eventually dies. And it's that fact of death that makes the incarnation of Jesus Christ so, so very important. Because here we have a God that is willing to interact with that death alongside with us. That no other God created or formed by man was ever willing to do. The holy God that we serve was willing to actually do that. He was born into a world of sin and destruction that led to death, was willing to enter in that, to interact with it on every level that we interact with, and to face it of his own will, to face his own death. We hold this about the incarnation to be absolutely true, that Jesus Christ was with God in the beginning, that he was God, From before the beginning he was God. That God, in the form of this man Jesus, came to earth and became fully human flesh while retaining his godliness. And that while in human flesh and form, Jesus Christ died. So that we could be made right with God and we believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, conquering death. The fact of death is what makes the incarnation so important. Without the incarnation... We have no hope whatsoever. Without the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we have only death. Without the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the only thing we can look forward to in life is death. But because Jesus Christ became incarnate, we have a new hope. We have something else to place our hope in. Because we have a God that was willing to interact with death, to come in, to face the death that we brought on and to conquer it, to submit to it himself and to defeat it. So that's what separates us, our faith, from every other faith. The existence of death that we all share, but the presence of Jesus Christ in flesh, God in flesh, interacting with us in this life, facing death the way that we do. The story of the incarnation of Jesus is a deep and very rich story. And it's a very powerful story. The story of the incarnation of Jesus is very visceral. And by visceral, what I mean is like, it's, it's meant to be felt, like on every level. The, the story of the incarnation, if you believe that God became man, you have to believe everything that goes along with that. You can't just separate at points in time and say, well, well. Well, Jesus, being God, was able to somehow transcend his humanity. Jesus obviously transcended his humanity. But at every time, he was still fully, absolutely human. It is a visceral story. God becoming flesh means a God-man that bled, that stunk, that had body odor, potentially had foot fungus... From time to time, he had bad breath. He went to the bathroom. He urinated. He defecated. He did all of that stuff. To be man is a visceral story. For God to take on that form is a visceral story. It is meant to be felt. And to believe the incarnation means to believe all of that. All of that. And if we don't believe any of it, then we don't believe it at all. It's a visceral story. It's meant to be participated in. It's meant to be felt and experienced. And so today, the invitation is for us to experience that. We're not going to talk about the incarnation. I think I've already talked about the theology of the incarnation as much as I'm going to today. Um, The theology of the incarnation is is absolutely critical to our belief. But today, the invitation is for us to experience the incarnation, to experience the story of God becoming man, interacting with man, interacting with death and sin, and all of that nastiness that we all experience today. So the invitation is to experience that today. Uh, Today the word is is basically going to be divided into three acts. Um, I I don't know if that's going to be completely obvious to you, but in three acts we're going to tell the story of Jesus incarnate, of the God becoming flesh. And how he interacted in this space with humanity. How the divine came to be physical. And how the divine and the physical interacted. How the spirit and the flesh interacted in the space and embodiment of one human being. Of one legitimate, real, live human being that gives us all hope from death. Um, It's a story, like I said, that requires participation um, it's a story that exists in three acts, and now I kind of sound like um, I'm repeating myself. So let's just move forward um, in the spirit of of this American life, an eyeglass. Act one. The idea of the incarnation is itself an idea that the world tells us is foolish. This notion, first of all. In modern day, this notion that there could be a God, to many seems foolish. But to take that a step further and to believe that there would be a God that would actually take on human flesh, born as a baby, growing up as a man, to die on the cross and to rise again, is a story that the world tells us is absolutely foolish. Today we live in a world that centers their thinking around reason Reason is the thing that governs human thought today. And human thought today will tell us that all of these notions of, of incarnation, of an incarnate God, is simply foolish. The good news is, we do not worship a God that uses human thinking. We worship a God that uses his own wisdom. And his own wisdom is greater than all of man's highest thoughts. And so God's wisdom tells us the incarnation is true. Without the incarnation of the divine with the physical in the form of Jesus, as I said before, there is no Christ, there is no Messiah, there is no faith, there is only death. And reason will tell us that this is true. And reason will cloak itself in terms of science and all sorts of other things uh, to tell us that these things cannot possibly be true. But we hold and we state and declare our belief that the incarnation was real. That Jesus Christ was who he said he was and that the things that he did on this earth were the things that were recorded. And that Jesus, interacting as an incarnate man, did all of the things that he said he did. We call these things miracles, okay? We're going to talk today about some miracles. Miracles are the things, one definition of miracle is a miracle is something that can only be explained by the supernatural which again the world will tell you today doesn't exist there is only reason there is only supernatural but jesus worked in such a way and he did miracles in such a way that if one believes you can you can see you can see how reason aside it makes absolute sense therefore confirming reason And I want to take a look at one of those stories. And this is a miracle of the incarnation. Take your Bible, your text, and go to John chapter 2. A story that the world in its reason would say is impossible is a story of the very first miracle that Jesus supposedly performed on earth. It is at least the first story of a miracle um, recorded by any of the gospel writers. How many of you would banter with your mom? <laughs> I, some of my f- fondest memories, yeah, Adam's raising his hand, Yeah, I've heard you banter with your mom. One of, one of my fondest memories as a kid, as a kid and even as a young man, is just bantering with my mom, like just having fun with her. Like moms are moms and, and they don't always get, you know, kids, but moms are great. And so when I read this, I, I, I hear Jesus bantering with his mom. In that way. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Some translations say, What does this have to do with us? As if to say, Mom, butt out. Okay? It's somebody else's wedding. Everything's going to be fine. What does this have to do with me? But then he says, My hour has not yet come. His hour of being revealed as the Messiah, as the God man come in flesh, had not yet come. But, (laughs) doing as mothers do, His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So this exchange between Jesus, a son, and his mother is going on. And Jesus says, it has nothing to do with us, besides my hour has not yet come, presuming that she knows what he's talking about. But mom, being mom, just says to the servants there, just do whatever he tells you to do. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. because those people are already drunk, then you can bring out worse wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. The reason I think this miracle is such a cool story of the incarnated Christ working As God-man in flesh, is because of the way that he deals with the concept of death. Now in order to understand how death is working into this story, you have to understand a little bit about the process of making wine. The process of making wine is a process that is all about death and crushing. From the time the grape is plucked off of the vine, death is introduced into the process. That grape, now existing apart from the vine, is dead. It cannot exist on its own. When they take hundreds of thousands of these grapes and they put them in a large vat, then they crush them. And they have humans in their dirty, nasty, filthy human feet smashing these wines and crushing them, destroying whatever they once were into something else, into this gelatinous mess of skin and juice. And then all of that stuff is taken together, yeast is added to it, and through the death of those grapes, interacting on a molecular chemical level with this yeast, then produces a substance called alcohol that then creates what we call wine. The creation of wine and the process of making wine is a process that is totally and and completely about death and crushing. And I think it's interesting that even though Jesus' time to be revealed as the God-man has not yet come, he decides to take this process somehow divinely and supernaturally of crushing and death and, and somewhere in the midst of taking water and filling jars, scooping it out, pouring it into a cup and giving it to the master of the ceremony, does that process. He does that process of creation because it was water, it wasn't grapes, of creation, of crushing and death and fermentation and all of that stuff and produces a substance that is the best wine of the feast. What an interesting way for Jesus to introduce himself as a miracle worker. Undeniably, we say this is a miracle because water does not naturally turn into wine. This is the divine God Interacting in the physical world as man to do something. To bring something that previously wasn't, to make it into something new. Now there are other sermons about alcohol. I'm not going into that now. That is your conscience with you and God. I'm not addressing that. All I'm addressing is the reality that Jesus created wine out of water. By By interacting with a process of death and crushing, to make something that wasn't out of something that was, to take water and make it into something new, to take something that was good, to introduce in his own way death and crushing and creation, and to make something new that was also good. This is the God man. This is the divine working very deeply in the physical realm the divine introducing itself into the physical, the God introducing himself into the world of man to bring about something new. Now, reason will tell us that that's impossible. But if the creator of the universe, the one that created grapes, became man, and if he knew the code of how to create grapes and to do all of that other stuff, it's perfectly logical That that God in flesh could do all of those things. If you know the code of something, if you wrote the code of something and can rewrite the code of something, then you can do it. Reason does not violate that whatsoever. But this is the story of Jesus taking this water, turning it into wine. The divine interacting with the physical. Now did you notice where the water came from? What jars did Jesus have used for this? These are big stone jars that are used, as John tells us, for the purification rites. Now this is really fascinating. Because the purification rites was was an activity that the Jews at the time would use. They would fill these jars with water. And during purification rites, you would wash yourself with this water. So the Jews, to make themselves symbolically clean would take this water reserved for purification rites, purified by the rabbis and the priests, and they would physically wash themselves with this water to make themselves clean. And Jesus decides his first miracle is to use water reserved for purification rites and to turn that into wine. Fascinating. Maybe it's not as fascinating to you right now as it is to me, but it's fascinating. We're going to talk about a little more water reserved for purification rites, he turns into wine. He turns into wine as part of a celebration of this man, this God interacting as man. The second definition of miracle that we use, at least in our language, is to say an effect or a result that can only be ascribed as an act of God. This is what we're going to use for the term miracle when we talk about the incarnated Christ. An effect or a result that can only be explained as an act of God. Now we're moving on to the second act, which involves different miracles. And these miracles may not seem to you to be the type of miracle that we had just seen, where the God-man transforms something, not using magic, but using his creator nature, his God-nature, to to transform water into wine. The next miracles in the second act are going to look a a little bit different. To be fully incarnate as God-man, Jesus had to experience the fullness of what it meant to be human. If he was actually human, then the fullness of the human experience had to be inescapable to him. He could not avoid it. The next stories that we're going to examine are stories of that with him. In the way that Jesus, interacting in humanity as a human, felt the fullness of what it meant to be man. To interact with death the way that man does. Beyond just that process of winemaking, to interact with death the way that we actually do. To interact with sin. To interact with sin the way that we do. For it is by man's sin that death came into the story. And it is for this sin that Christ had to come. Matthew chapter 4 is the first of these stories in this act. When Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, now this was before the miracle at Cana, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. In the story of the temptation of Jesus, I submit this is a miracle. This miracle, this explanation that can only be that can only be explained as, a, as, a, as an act of God. This miracle of the temptation of Jesus is a story of Jesus now interacting fully in his flesh with the thing that we struggle with more than anything else in life, and that is the temptation to sin. And so we have the story of Jesus led into the desert to be tempted so that his full godness could show up in his full humanity. So that he could find himself and declare himself pure and sinless. But yet he still faced this temptation. Now it's easy for us in that space of the incarnation. This is one of those places where at least it's easy for me to sort of extract the God out of the man and kind of say, here's the explanation for how Christ could be without sin because he was fully God. But the story is clear. He hadn't eaten in 40 days. He's physical. He's physical. He's in his physical form. Jesus is at his physically human weakest part. We cannot separate the godness. We can't just unscrew his head, take out his godness in the story. He is fully human inside of the story. And he is faced with the deepest temptations that speak to the very same temptations that we have. Is it a temptation to sin, to be hungry, to eat something when you're hungry? No, but Jesus is fasting. He's spending this time with God. The temptation is to turn his eyes away from the word of his Father to consume food. He is at his weakest spot, a place that we all know. Then Satan turns that hunger into lust, and he turns that lust into other things. And so he tempts Jesus with the lust of authority and power. Sound familiar? And he tempts Jesus with the lust of significance and recognition. Sound familiar? These are things that we all experience on the deepest levels, and the most shallow levels. But Jesus, in Matthew 4, is embodying this experience. And notice, the thing that he's, be, he's being tempted with are things that are rightfully his. They're things that are rightfully his that he has willingly put aside. And Satan tempts him with the things that are his and tempts him to sin in that way. And in that way, the God-man experiences something even deeper than anything you or I have ever experienced. But he experiences the fullness of every temptation that we could possibly experience. The temptation to lust after the things that we think will make us significant the things that we think that will bring meaning to our lives, the things that we think will give us pleasure, and the things that we think are important. Jesus was tempted with all of those same things. And this miracle, this explanation of something that only God could do, could only exist in a God that was also fully man. And so the incarnation takes place in this time-worn story that we have, that Jesus Christ experienced every temptation that we have ever experienced and knows every temptation that we know. He knows what it's like to face those things. He knows what it's like to feel the draw of those things that we feel. And while the text doesn't give any space in between what Satan says and what Jesus says, I have to imagine there was space. When when, when Satan says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Between verses 6 and 7, there's a space that's not included there. And there's that space where Jesus feels that temptation, where the human Jesus remembers with the mind of God the service of angels and knows that he has every right to demand that. There's a space in there where Jesus is feeling that temptation. And then verse 7. Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so where the miracle occurs is that the God-man doesn't do what every other man and woman has done, and that he does not sin. And there's the miracle, even though he has faced the temptation. The second story in this act is in John chapter 10. The second miracle in this act is is one that we're also familiar with. But the miracle that I want to draw our attention to may not be the one that we think is the, uh, uh, John chapter 11, sorry, is the one that um, we often look to. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, He whom you love is ill, but when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, for it is the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and are going there again. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. So that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Then Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Now I read that whole story, that whole part of it, just to get to that last sentence. And Jesus wept. We saw in that chapter in advance, Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do. He knew he was going to interact with death. This man God in flesh was going to interact with death in a way that no one had ever seen it done before, in a way that he had never revealed himself to do it before. He was going to interact with death in a way that he was going to defeat it and rise Lazarus from the grave. But he continues to walk out this thing, and he sees Mary and Martha weeping, and he's deeply moved, and he weeps. Now this is, this is the miracle. Yeah, the miracle comes later, where Jesus says to Lazarus, (laughs) he says, get up, come forth, get out. Yeah, that's the miracle, but the miracle of the incarnation is in that one small verse, smallest verse in the Bible. Where Jesus wept. There's only a godly explanation for that. Therefore, it's a miracle that God would weep over death that he knew he was going to beat. This is the full humanity of God interacting with us, interacting with death. The emotions that Jesus felt in that time were real. The emotions, I think the anger that Jesus had towards death in that place was Real. It's as real as the anger you feel when someone you know dies. It's as real as the anger that you feel when something that you love dies. That's the miracle of Jesus being fully God in flesh, interacting in the space of death that we all struggle with. He wept. He wept. His friend was dead and he cried. He wept. This was the miracle because he knew, he knew what he was going to do, but he still was hurting and he was still angry. And he shows us that everything we have ever experienced in life, he has experienced. Everything that you walk through or will walk through, he has experienced because everything that we walk through centers around death. And Jesus approached death Head on, And even in his full godliness, was willing to be man. It's willing to be fully man to feel everything that you have felt. There's a verse that's been up there for this, this act of the incarnation. I'm going to read it. And I want you in the space of those things that you feel right now. Whether it's death, whether it's temptation to sin, whether it's weakness... And invite you, as I read this passage, to focus on a sentence or a phrase that really stands out to you. And focus on the incarnation of Christ as you hear these words. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the Son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. But we see him who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. If you're anything like me, maybe the thing that you're feeling seems really insignificant, and you wonder how this thing that you're feeling in your life could be something that that Jesus could ever possibly have cared about, or even as he experienced, what could it possibly have been? For me this week, <laughs> I, um, I think I've shared with you in another context my hate-hate relationship with driving on the interstate. I've been doing a lot of it lately, way too much of it. And, and uh, <laughs> Friday, Thursday or Friday, I remember, I was coming home from work, and I'm stuck behind a um, Toyota, what, what kind of car was it? What did we have? Huh? A Toyota Slow. Um with Texas plates. <laughs> I don't even know why that's important. But I was stuck behind a Toyota Slow with Texas plates and, and uh, going just fast enough in the left lane that they would, they would come up to the next car and then slowly pass it and just, you know, tooling around. And they've got their precious baby in the back and both the driver and the passenger are caring for the baby. And, and I'm just... <laughs> um, But I had this image of what I've been feeling this week, largely, and that's this image of me just stuck on this track, this track made of other people's choosing, subject to their own desires and their own sin and their own failing, and in the same space, just recognizing that I'm stuck in this track of my own sin and my own failings and and all of this stuff, and just thinking that my life is going on this track that I can't deviate on. No matter how much I want to get from behind this Toyota, I can't do it. And I'm just heading down this path. And I'm just stuck on this interstate that never ends. Heading to a destination that was designed by somebody else. Uh, <laughs> that I am forced to go down because of my own choices. But just kind of stuck there. And this week, even in processing, like this notion that Jesus experienced everything that we experience, I'm thinking, man, how insignificant is that? I have a good life. Why, why, why does that bother me so much? How insignificant is that? And could Jesus actually know what that felt like? Could he actually know what that felt like? Does he know what it's like to be stuck on a two-lane highway going a destination of somebody else's choosing, suffering, struggling with the consequences of sin, in my case, my sin and other people's sin? Does he actually know that? And then I was led back to Scripture and realized that, yeah, in fact, he did. Then Jesus went to them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Um, I think when Jesus said that last phrase, he was talking about himself. A lot of times we think that he's talking about Peter. I think he was talking about himself and he was asking for help. Jesus found himself in a place in a road of, his, uh, of not his own design, but a road of sin and death that he was traveling down. Inextricably, there was no way out. There was no way out. He knew where he was heading, and he was suffering with the consequences of sin. Not his own, but others. And to make it more personal, not his own, but yours. The consequence of my sin is what Jesus was feeling as he's heading down this two-lane road stuck behind Toyota Slow, you know, heading towards the cross. This is the miracle of the Incarnation as well. And before that, he, he does another miracle. Now, as they were eating, this is in the upper room before they go to the garden, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take eat, this is my body. And he took a cup And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. While he's going down this path, this inextricable highway, leading towards death and destruction, Jesus does this other miracle, and it's kind of the anti-miracle. Because if you go back, you remember the, the Feast of Cana. He takes water... And he turns it into wine. He takes a process of crushing and death, creates something new and good. And in this place, takes that same wine, not from the same bottle, but the same wine, and he does a new miracle. And with his, with his, with his disciples, his closest friends, this God-man does something else. And he says to the people, this wine, this process of crushing and death is now my blood. And whereas before where the divine interacted with the physical to make something physically new, here he does the exact opposite. This is the man interacting with the divine. He takes the cup, the grape, this wine, this physical thing. He doesn't transform it into some weird spiritual thing, belief in transubstantiation aside. He takes this cup, this physical thing of earth that he had previously turned from water he takes it and then transforms it into the emblem of his blood. So the man interacting with the divine creates something divine out of something purely base and physical and plain. And he makes it divine to his disciples. And he gives them the emblem of the washing that he is going to provide to them on the cross. And the emblem that he's going to provide to us on the cross. A band, you can come come back up. He creates this emblem of his own death and his own suffering from the wine that he previously created out of water. And you remember at Cana, it was jars used for the purification rites that were filled with water that he turned into wine. He then takes wine and he turns it into the purification rite for all of mankind. So he's now gone full circle in his miraculous interacting, first as a divine God interacting in the physical world, interacting in the physical world, now as a man, fully God, interacting in the spiritual world. And, and, and Jesus does this, this miracle, and he creates the communion cup that we now, that we now partake in. And he creates this communion cup, and, 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 under, and in the Passover festival, the cup that he took would have been the last cup of the feast, not unlike at the wedding of Canaan where he takes the last cup, the last wine, and creates the, the best wine. In this case, he takes the best wine and makes it into something even better. And he makes it from the purification jars of water, the emblem of the purification that he provides to all of us. We're going to partake in communion today as a body. Um, the cup and the bread are down here. It's not wine. It's juice. But we're going to partake in communion down front. Um, if, if you claim the purification of Christ's blood, you are invited to partake of communion, to engage in this miracle that Christ created as a, as a fully flesh God-man. If you're a parent and your kids are here, you're responsible for your kids. You are responsible for um, directing them as you would have them move. If, if um, you, you know their hearts, you know their spirit. But we invite you now to to partake in communion with us as a body in this miracle. Um, Last month, um, this is our benediction, but it's also like the final act in this incarnation. Because you can't talk about the incarnation without talking about the end and celebrating the resurrection. Jesus Christ rose again. He rose again physically. This isn't just some separation of the spirit out of the corpse that was laying laying in the tomb. This is a physical resurrection. The incarnation, as Justin read to us this morning, I think it was John Stott, the incarnation continues. The incarnation continues. He rose again physically. The incarnation continues to be real. We do not serve a God like the gods of old that would retreat to their cloud resorts so they could play chess with human fates. We serve a God that took on human fate as his own and then turned the story <laughs> what what was our fate what was our destiny Jesus Christ through his sacrifice through his death and through his resurrection <laughs> he turned the story he changed it he doesn't just play the game with us from his throne up on high no he's going to come again and heaven and earth are going to meet again in the person of the incarnated Jesus. Amen? He's going to come again. I think it was last year, was it Dan? Gave us a really cool message about the interaction between heaven and earth. Heaven is not a place where we're going to go. Heaven is coming down to us. Jesus is coming back to us, for us. He is coming back to renew renew creation, to restore creation, to make it all new again. Heaven comes down. And then glory fills our soul, right? Heaven comes down, and we we worship a Jesus Christ incarnate, still incarnate, who will come again to rescue us. He's already rescued us, but to rescue us from the destiny that we had. He has changed that story, and he does it again. We have the confidence that he did this because of Scripture. Last month, um, a, a, a team, we were teaching upstairs, and we... It was just the way that it worked. We were teaching the kids on the story of Jesus post-resurrection. Actually, we took him, we, we gave him a, we, we led him on a, a funeral service for Jesus, and and then we celebrated his resurrection. And then for the rest of the month, we talked about his interactions with human beings. In flesh, Jesus interacted after resurrection with in flesh human beings. And there's a, there's a mural on the wall over to, the, to that side. If, if you want to take a look at it, you can see This is just uh, some of the places where Jesus interacted in flesh with humans. But one of the things that he did in this time was, well, well, two things. One of the things that he did was he he said to his disciples at one point in the upper room uh, and and in other places, he said, I'm hungry. Do you have any fish? (laughs) And the resurrected Jesus Christ incarnate ate fish. He ate fish. While he was resurrected, he was in physical form Still God, still man, eating fish with his disciples. And then the second one was with Thomas, and we read the story of Lazarus. You know, Thomas gets a bad rap. Thomas, the whole time that he was with Jesus, was the first to rush wherever Jesus was going. Thomas undeservedly gets the nickname doubting, when Thomas was the one who always believed. When Jesus said, I'm going to my death, Thomas was the first to say, I'm going with you, let's go. Let's roll. Let's do this. At the end, <laughs> I think Thomas was so crushed by what had happened to Jesus that he could just, he, in that space, he could not believe. And what did Jesus do? Jesus appeared specially just for Thomas to show him the wounds in his hands and the wound in his side. And he said to Thomas, put your, put your finger in, in the hole in my hand so you can feel that. And put your hand in, in, in my side... Sorry, the side. Uh, where the spear went in. So you can see that it is me that I suffered, that I was wounded, and that I'm alive, that I'm alive. That's a big deal, right? This is the incarnate Christ. This morning, Jake um, shared this, this idea. And, and it's so good. Like, Jesus was our healer. Jesus is our healer. All of those spaces that you interact with death, Every day, Jesus is our healer. He heals those places. But in order order to heal those, he had to be wounded first. And he had to experience everything that we experience, and he was wounded. And and Jake posed this question, like, what was that like for Jesus to have Thomas stick his finger in in his wounds? Did that hurt? We don't know, but Jesus felt all of those things, and he still carries those wounds. He is our wounded healer because he is and was our incarnated God. He is greater than all other gods that ever existed that man created before him because of the incarnation. And that's why we have the reason for the hope that we have. Um, So if you could stand for our benediction, I'm just going to read the the verses that are up on the board, uh, up on the screen. This is a, First Timothy 3.16, I'm going to read this over you as a benediction, and then we'll pray. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. God, we thank you so much for the story of the Incarnation that ended with the resurrection of Jesus and includes and includes the gift of the Holy Spirit that resides with us and in us, so that Jesus, at the end, when he left, he could say that, Behold, he is with us always to the end of the age. God, we worship you. We worship the incarnated Jesus who remains with us, even to the very end of the age, God. Jesus is the embodiment of the Holy Spirit. He is the divine, become human. He is our Savior. He is our hope, God, and we thank you for that. Um, Cornerstone, may you experience as you go today the full incarnation of Jesus Christ, the one who experienced everything that man could experience, the one that gives us hope. He is the source of your hope. He is the source of of your confidence in your faith and in your belief. May you experience him fully, the incarnated, uh, killed, and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name over you. Amen.